Today's episode of Idle Weekend is brought to you by BarkBox, a delivery service offering monthly deliveries of toys and treats for your dog. Go to getbarkbox.com weekend to sign up and get a free month of BarkBox. Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. This weekend, we're talking about hacking in games. But not just like a, you know, whole giant thing about all the games with hacking in them. No, no, no. We're specifically talking about the fantasy of the hacker. The zero cool who can do all. So Rob, this subject is uh, very much near and dear to my heart as a big fan of Hackers, the fantastic 1995 movie. But we've already talked about that. The real reason we're talking about it right now is because Quadrilateral Cowboy came out. It's Blendo Games, uh, where you play as a cool little cardboard Blendo Games person who is also like a mastermind hacker in the early 80s. Uh, and you go on like little heists and you figure out how to basically bend the entire universe's will to yours so that you can sort of get the things that you want. Hacking okay, is cool. so <laughs> I actually just want to dive right into this because I actually have the biggest crush on Blendo Games because I always oh, find yeah. that their games, like I guess the, the my my feeling playing Blendo Games, uh, you know, works is um, I always want them to be a lot bigger and a lot more because what's there is kind <laughs> of perfect. And then I'm like, well, why didn't you just make the huge game? Like I've, I can play this. I can play this endlessly. Uh, why wasn't there just more stuff? Uh, I am curious. Like, does this does this sort of follow in that in 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 that uh, in those footsteps of like being super refined, super uh, tightly paced, super stripped down, and kind of short? Um. It is, but not nearly to the degree as uh, sort of previous games. So it's not like Thirty Flights of Loving, where it's you know like kind of like a half hour sort of experience. This is much more like a five hour long experience, which I think it's the longest Blendo game so far. Blendo games game. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's pretty meaty, actually. Yeah, you know, That means you, you definitely still want more for sure when you're playing it. Like it's it's definitely the case where everything that's there is so fucking brilliant and so well done that you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Iterate on that. But then it's kind of off to a new idea. Like each each sort of set of stages kind of... Like, they all build off each other, but there, there are definitely... I don't want to, you know, talk too directly about it with, with you not discovering it yet. But, you know, there, there's definitely a desire for there to be more. But, you know, Blendo Games also added, like, pretty awesome mod support for this. So I'm actually anticipating, you So know, there could be more. Exactly. It could be like it could be like Sherlock. It could be like the Sherlock Holmes board games. There's there's nothing to stop you from printing your own. You can make so many. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, so tell me a little bit about, like... What is like? What does what does quadrilateral cowboy identify as essential about the the hacker fantasy? Like, what is because we've seen hacking take so many different uh, like shapes and sizes in video <laughs> games, and a lot of them pretty bad, pretty pretty, yeah. pretty laughable. Pretty uh, I'm curious, like, is is quadrilateral cowboy going in a uh, like trying to go in a slightly more authentic direction? Is it slightly, or is it going full on like cartoon watchdogs? Like you're a wizard, but we call it <laughs> hacking. Uh, what what goes on? Well, I think it's okay. I, I am not a hacker. Like I, I know a little bit of C sharp, and that's sort of where it all begins and ends for me with with code. Um, but it is very sort of 
it feels authentic. Let's put it that way. It feels authentic to a complete lay person. Um, you know, you're basically running around um, in these very stylized worlds. So it doesn't look, you know, it's not like a photorealistic kind of depiction, uh, which I think is very much to its credit. Um, and you put down like your little deck, your little laptop. So the, the time frame is like early 80s. And you actually are in a command line interface. You actually have to type out on your physical keyboard, like help to see sort of the directory of commands. And then it'll kind of tell you like, here, here are the commands available. And then, you know, you, you say something like open skylight one. And then you, you know, in parentheses, you put three for three seconds and that will open skylight one for three seconds. Like it, it feels like there's a, a, at least a close relationship to reality in terms of here are the objects. Here's how you talk to a computer. Here's how you make that computer do the things you want it to do. Like that, that right. sort of aspect of, of programming, um, that sort of godlike feeling of like, oh my God, I made a thing happen. I made a thing work. Um, that's always been sort of the appeal <laughs> to me as, as sort of like a baby programmer who just is you know, not even a program, like a very baby level scripter who's just sort of trying to learn the basics of things. I get very excited if I'm working in C Sharp and I'm like, oh my God, I made my character move and it didn't die and fall through the ground kind of thing. It's that feeling. And that is just the best damn feeling. Like it's, it's this feeling that like you have command of a secret language that makes things happen in the world that nobody else could really understand. You're, you're part of this elite subset of people who understand this special language right. and you can just bend this universe to your will. Now, it's not where does easy, the, but it's awesome. <laughs> now, where does the hacking come in? Like is one of those commands like hack that lock or something like that? Is it a magical, like just put in, put something in and, and, and stuff happens. You, you break into a system. It's, it's literally there... that you broke into the system and you're going to individual elements, okay. you know, and saying like, okay, here are all the things available in this security system. There's skylight one through three. There's great one through five. There's, okay. you know, laser one through three. So it sort of starts from the assumption that you've already broken into the system and it's kind of, Proceeding from there along the lines of now you have to learn the logic of the way that system inter interacts exactly. with this physical re reality. Exactly. Exactly. So it, it abstracts certainly part of the hacking. I guess it, it abstracts the sort right. of cracking into the code part of it. But from there, it actually feels like, yeah, okay, this makes sense. I made the laser stop. I made the grade open. I made the skylight go open. After your first set of missions, you get access to this this thing called a weevil, which is like this little robot who can kind of walk around and do things for you in spaces that you can't physically be in. So you kind of have that extra level of access. Like, oh, it's my little, it's not a drone because it's early 80s, but it's like, it's my little robot who does these things, uh, which is also pretty awesome. And you, 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 the player, are watching the screen and you, the character, are watching on a VHS, like a crappy old VHS date. Uh, deck watching what the weaver is doing and it's it's kind of awesome these these sort of levels of abstraction are happening sort of as they would be in like something akin to reality <laughs> uh, so, so yeah it's it's this this wonderful wonderful power fantasy of like look at these problems in front of me i am capable of solving these problems i can get into this place i can pull off this heist because i am so damn good at knowing this secret language why do you feel that is such a powerful uh, fantasy. Cause I, 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 I agree with you. I think it is, but like ultimately when you, when you take a lot of like hacker fantasy games and sort of boil them down, right? What you're, what you're kind of doing is like you opened a door 
Yeah. You turned a camera off or something like that. Like it's all it's all very simple. It's all very simple stuff. A lot of times what you're doing is you're just like flipping switches basically uh to make stuff happen and it's maybe that like there's that maybe there's there's sort of a childish pleasure of like you discovered there's a secret remote control that like <laughs> like governs all this stuff around you but I am curious like but you know at the same time this is this is pretty uh, basic stuff a lot of these games allow you to do but why do you think putting in that framework is like this powerful like narcotic uh, <laughs> when it comes to a, a creating a fantasy around yourself I think there's a sense that you have power over the universe you know and that, that all humans like whether we're you know pretty secure in our feelings or not are all kind of we all kind of feel small sometimes right we all kind of feel like well you know anything could happen i could get hit by a car and die tomorrow the world is a chaotic and terrible place or, or a chaotic, just a generally chaotic place but this is you or you know the hacker fantasy is you being able to, to impose your will and mm. your order on this universe and say no this is a very clear, logical language. I'm solving problems with this. And I am making things happen the way I want them to. And I feel like that's a, just such a core part of it. Like like this core part of being like, hey, look at me. I'm actually powerful. I wield this power. It's mine now, you know? That's, yeah, I think that, that, that sort of, that rings true for me. Uh, because so often... So often part of the classic hacker story as well. Well, so your dumb ones kind of have this nerd <laughs> fantasy, right? Where it's like yeah. Revenge of the Nerds, but with like more uh, hacker typing and like lots of gobbledygook <laughs> flashing across the screen. Yeah. Uh, but I, I feel like a lot of them, there's this uh, part of the power fantasy is that ability to exert control over a world that is chaotic and large and scary. Um and I think we were talking before the show about uh, Mr. Robot, uh, yes. which is in its second season. And yeah. I haven't started watching the second season yet because uh, I've been recording it. I just don't have a sound system for my new apartment. And I kind of don't want to watch it on my crappy TV speakers. But anyway. <laughs> sure. Yeah. But I think like one of the things that, that like Mr. Robot uh, has going on, but I think it run, it's a thread that runs through a lot of like... Uh, hacker fiction is that you know you're taking characters that are in many ways like very damaged people yeah uh, and very overwhelmed by the world and interactions interacting with the world as a a flawed uh and and somewhat irrational human being and then hacking and the world of the machines like like for these characters offers this retreat into a place where not only do you have not only do you have power but it's also a place where the things you're not good at kind of fall away yeah and the things yeah. you are good at are all that really matter yeah yeah there's the power in that logic and in the sort of like ability to think like a machine you know there's there's certainly people in this world that feel more comfortable talking to computers than talking to humans right like like speaking in code basically like there's there's such a sort of beauty in the logic and the order of code as opposed to the sort of messy human world of, of you know, half-meant you know, things we don't necessarily mean when we say them and, and, and things like that. Like, yeah, Mr. Robot is such a perfect example of that and such a, like, I don't know, such an awesome character. I have been watching uh, the second season and really enjoying it thus far. It's, it starts off a little messy, but I think it's, it's really picking up steam at this point. Uh, but yeah, it's, 
I watch that show and I'm like, man, I get it. Like, I, I get it. Like, the, one of the core fantasies of that show is the is the idea of taking down a massive corporation and, like, erasing loans and debt for people and, and sort of, like, saying, here, we're going to redistribute the wealth. We're going to have this this revolution. And, you know, it, it's... <laughs> in a lot of ways, it's it's, like... Maybe an oversimplified fantasy, but who who doesn't want to do that? You know, in in 2016, who doesn't want to like erase debt and and you just know, get out from under it? Yeah, exactly. Like not have the sort of shitty structures that we have in our lives, sort of making us do all the things, the drudgery that we don't want to do. I was uh, reading something recently, and I don't remember the specifics, but. There, there is something of that sort of radical political that, that goes along with a lot of this, this sort of hacker ethos as well as, it, you know, the whole idea of like, you know, the human world is flawed and we can, we can make it better. We can, we can use our power in a good way. There's a very sort of like earnest, if not always uh, <laughs> completely clear headed, but an earnestness about that, like an earnestness about like, yeah, we're going to make things better because we're the people who should be in power. <laughs> Yeah, the, that um, and it, it, I think one thing that's always sort of put me off this kind of fa- this this kind of fiction a little bit is that a lot of times the people who are dreaming of power are every bit as scary as the people they dream of replacing, right? Oh, like, yeah. I mean, oh yeah, I mean, like <laughs> the, the band of misfits around Mister Robot is kind of terrifying uh, to think that like they you know that they that they somehow like might be in charge one day or, so, are or they, something. Yeah, like are that. they going to run the world? Like how are they going to deal with foreign politics? Like what, right, like, you know, what, like yeah, <laughs> their motivations. Like have they really thought this through? Um, yeah. This like it's sort of like the, the this act of intellectual this this act of supreme intellectual vanity. Oh, yeah. I will destroy the world order and kind of remake it in my image. But by that, I just kind of mean I'm going to leave it chaotic and awesome. Um, but <laughs> yeah. So, but going back to like going back to these games and going back to like quadrilateral cowboy. Uh, so I mean, so th- that appeal is is partly uh, that you're able to sort of make things happen in you know in the world that like you've been given um, you've been given like the cheat code for reality. Yeah, uh, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. Within that, like. How do you how do you keep that fresh though, right? Like like other like because after a certain point, it might just be like you're just you're you're just putting stuff into a command line interface for novelty's sake, just to, to make simple stuff happen. Like how does quadrilateral keep, uh, cowboy maintain that sense of like empowerment that 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 sense that like you are still being um, like indoctrinated into these mysteries uh as you as you perform these like hacker rituals uh how does it how does it keep that up well part of it is that it's just a really well-designed puzzle game too like there's always that aspect of it and there's always time pressure as well like you're being timed throughout your entire mission in all your missions and you can never leave certain things open or leave certain things closed or off for more than three seconds or you get a, a really bad penalty for doing it so there's always the question of like you actually need to be fairly dexterous to you know, make some of these things happen. You can't just put them into the command line. You've got to put them in the command line. You have to run at certain times. You have to kind of jump your way through certain things. It's not in any way like a, a platformer or anything like that, but you do need to be on your toes. Um, and the sort of the heist framing also helps with that as well. Like 
there's this this whole vibe with the entire game that you're going on these jobs. You know, you're you're gonna get the red suitcase. You're gonna you know you're gonna get whatever it is in the in the sort of office building or the you know the the train car or whatever it is that in that particular mission and. You know, it's, it's presented as a challenge. How fast can you do this? Can you do this really well? Can you do this, you know, and also maybe complete a secret objective? Can you, you know, it, it's that sort of gamer, you know, the, the sort of typical gamer kind of stuff, but really, really well designed. Um, like the, these structures that you're actually going, you're infiltrating and you're, you know, getting whatever you need to get and getting out. They're really intricate and really interesting from even kind of an architectural perspective. Uh, there's always kind of something going on elsewhere in the building, and you don't completely necessarily know what it is, but the more and more you get to be a, a super powerful, awesome hacker, the more and more you're able to manipulate that as well. So there's like a really, really nice sort of stepping stone uh, aspect to that, and a really, really nice, um, just, just I, I, it's, it's always kind of hard to critique good design other than say like it's really well designed it's very smart you always kind of feel as if you're learning as you're going along so yeah just fucking awesome puzzle design <laughs> now in addition to sort of the command line interface stuff though but you, you're you're also like you, you said you're you're sort of one of those cardboard cutout people yeah. <laughs> that like populate blendo games uh Blendo games, games. I keep trying to evade that phrase, and I keep oh, stumbling. I know. <laughs> uh, one of those, one of those cardboard cutouts that, that populate uh, Blendo games. Um, They're really cute. <laughs> yeah, I, I was kind of wondering. Uh, so, like, so it, it, it's also partly a stealth game, then. Is, yeah, it is. Yeah. Like. Okay. I that, mean, stealth. That, you know, you're avoiding um, areas where there are cameras. You're, you know, it, it's not. It's not as much like a traditional stealth game, but yeah, there, there's sort of aspects of not being seen or not being seen for too long that are definitely a huge right. part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that. It strikes me that I, I don't feel like there have been a ton. It, like, it seems like there, this would be a marriage that you'd see more often. Yeah. But when I think <laughs> about it. While there's a lot of like cyberpunk games with stealth elements and everything, a lot of them get pretty uh shaky when it comes to what hacking looks like, right? Like like yeah. they like they they're they're interested in the concept of, of hacking, but they kind of don't want to like build any systems around it or or bog the player down with anything that's like remotely close convincing to <laughs> as hacking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. I, and I find that kind of interesting that like like quite a, quite a lot of cowboys is kind of this unusual game that's operating in in both in both spaces. It's is kind of having this uh, this sort of computer realm and then this sort of physical realm where you, where you sort of have to operate uh, in both places at once. I feel like that hasn't existed in too many other games. Maybe the most ambitious attempt to do something like that was I don't know. Uh, the original System Shock, but there the hacking oh, was this yeah. insane cyberpunk <laughs> fantasy um, that was like just totally like, yeah, you just jack in and oh shit, you're going down, you're through the looking glass now, and that's kind of how the yeah. game worked. You're on the magical slide. Um, thinking about it, I think maybe the 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 closest modern interpretation to like at least something was maybe human revolution. The, the deus ex game that came out, uh, God, five years ago now. Holy shit. That is, it has been a surprising length of oh time. Oh my God. 
<laughs> yeah, the, in in that game, the hacking was not any. It was not realistic or anything, but at least the idea was it was you were sort of capturing little data nodes, and and you kind of had to move faster than other data nodes, and you know it, the idea was you're capturing this information, and at least that had some kind of analog to reality. Now it's not like what you do when you hack something, but at least. There was something there. I mean, at least you weren't on a magical slide and you weren't playing Pipe Dream, which is like how Bioshock did the hacking. Oh, Pipe Dream. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, Uh, I actually didn't mind that. It was a fun minigame. It just had nothing on Earth to do with hacking. No, no. It was a very weird thing. I think it worked because it was this break from an otherwise pretty grueling game. Yeah. Um, I think they made it slightly better in Bioshock 2 where it's basically a... um, it was a magical dart sweet spot. Yeah, yeah it's like exactly. a magical metronome. Yeah, uh, and that, but even that was that was pretty silly. Uh, yeah, Human Revolution. I don't know. So I feel like the Deus Ex approach to hacking has always actually been more about just like, um, I guess you know, to an extent, maybe social engineering or just like leafing through mm. piles of stuff to find. You know where people wrote codes down and and stuff like that. I, I feel yeah. like the, the, for as cyberpunky as the Deus Ex games have tended to be, uh, I think they they love the aesthetic of a yeah. world sort of run and dominated by machines, but they don't actually want to fuss with those machines too much. Yeah, they they don't entirely trust the player to to have a break in the action for that long, which is funny and interesting, uh, given that that's sort of the, I mean, that is kind of the premise, right? Of the first games that it was like, yeah, no, this is an RPG. Like it's, you're, it's, it's intense. There's, there's numbers that you're going to manipulate, <laughs> but, but yeah, as time has gone on, it's kind of abstracted away. Maybe some parts of that as well. So I don't yeah. know. I, it's fun being a hacker. It's it's real. I mean, not in real life. I I probably couldn't hack like it's, my own. I suspect shoe, it's probably not that fun. I yeah, it's probably, probably a lot, lot more like boring. having a really crappy data entry job that then occasionally turns into piles of money. Exactly. Uh, that part's probably cool. Yeah. Uh, but no, I I think um, you know, other games that have sort of touched on this. I think one of the most ambitious. Mm, uh, but even there, I'm not sure how how hackery it was. Uh, did you ever play I Divine Cybermancy? I did not, but the oh, name man. itself makes me just want to immediately. So it's 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 so weird. Yeah, the name the name is super exciting, and oh, it has so a good. really really overdone like cyberpunk aesthetic. Like literally, oh, like yeah. the, it only it it has it, like here's basically here are the building blocks of that game. Uh, techno samurai armor. Oh my god! Like no, everybody's just wearing like samurai armor with like neon shit on it. It's amazing. Uh, and then all the streets are filled with neon ads and oh, hazy yes. smoke. Yes. Um, and there's no people anywhere except like guards and cops and, and shit like that. But yeah, that was one of those games where. Um, I mean, I trashed it when I reviewed it because, it, like, I, th- I still think that game was basically um, an ambitious and well-meant disaster. Sure. Uh, yeah. Maybe it got better eventually, but, like, I don't know. There's so many, it, was, it was a million and one systems that didn't really, 
it's not not even that they didn't really hang together. It's just that the, the the game around them didn't really completely cohere. Yeah. Um, and so I found it kind of bordering and unplayable uh, when I when I encountered it ages and ages ago. The weird thing is that a lot of people that I respect and who are super into like stealth stealth games and cyberpunk games, it's become this like cult classic. Though I strongly suspect, I strongly suspect most people just like love the idea of I divine cybermancy more than the reality. It Uh, sounds like a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. But one of the things I like, one of the things is like, it was this RPG. It was like, like, let's go even in more of an RPG direction than Deus Ex and create even more possibilities for play. And I want to say like one of the things they did was they... Uh, really expanded your tool set as far as like being able to break systems and and things like that and take things over remotely. Uh, and so it was kind of cool because when the in the rare moments where the game sort of hung together, like the levels were these sort of closed loop systems where everything was kind of re- like er- everything was sort of connected somehow. Uh, and it was kind of cool to sort of find the ways those those things could be used to your advantage or not. Uh, but then, of course, the then of course the guards would sort of see you and come trooping at you single file, and you'd kill them. And there's oh, no one less alive on the level, and you'd sort of yeah. be sitting there like, "Where am I supposed to go? Everyone's dead." Uh, yeah, uh, but yeah, other like I, I feel like there haven't been that many games. Maybe like Duskers was trying to like mm. get to, at some of that charm with its command line interface, but that's not really about hacking. Uh, it's just I find it interesting that not many people have combined. Uh, not many, not many games I think have have really done much with um, combining the the two layers of play. Where it's like, okay, like the world is run with, with computers, and you can break into the computers. So what does that look like? It, yeah. it requires a different tool set. Most games I think, and Watch Dogs is the most exaggerated example. <laughs> just go in this. Look, you got an awesome cell phone, okay? It's a computer, right? It's, <laughs> it's like so it's a fo- your phone's yeah. a computer, and yeah. it's computers everywhere, and you're a hacker, so sure. Yeah, change that light. You're awesome. Way to go. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of this comes down to uh, mechanically representing hacking is is a potentially very complicated thing, right? And, like, a lot of, of you know, a lot of games shy away from incredibly complicated mechanics like that when they're sort of a big budget actiony or action oriented kind of game. And I think, yeah, I, I, I don't think there would be a, a super big budget AAA version of quadrilateral cowboy, at least not right now in 2016. Like it, it's probably a little bit of a risk. It's, it, it is kind of a weird, you know, smaller puzzle game, basically like on its face, puzzle heist hacker game. So right. Yeah, there's something to that as well that like, yeah, some some weird new mechanics. I mean, they're genuinely like fairly innovative. I think, I mean, this is the first time I've played a hacking game that felt like a hacking game. <laughs> so, you know, I could be wrong. I could have I could have missed out on hackers, the hacking game, you know, at some point in my life. But this this feels new and it feels awesome and it feels kind of wonderful to be powerful in that way, for sure. So play Quadrilateral Cowboy. That's right, your I'm weekend project, Rob. Well, then I have a very important question. Uh, yes. One reason I'm not playing that many games right now is because I am on my laptop uh, predominantly. Ah, and yes. it's an old laptop. 
Uh, do the cutesy graphics of a Blendo game uh, will it allow will will it allow me to enjoy uh, Quadrilateral Cowboy without having like a beefy PC? Do you think? Oh yeah, fully, fully. Okay. I mean, awesome. I'm playing it on my on my Mac laptop, and it's running just fine. I mean, it's a pretty decent Mac laptop for sure, but it's. How many? Here. How old is it? Is it like the MacBook from Two like 2014? Okay. Yeah, yeah. 2014. Right. Late 2014. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah, it's pretty good. And you know, it was actually surprising. I had started playing it on my girlfriend's PC, and I sort of booted it up as well on my Mac laptop, feeling like, well, they said the Mac build isn't super ready yet, but it's been playing great. So I don't know. I think Blendo has been getting on top of things, basically. So that's pretty cool. Hacked. All right, I think that's probably uh, enough about the fantasy of hacking. We should return to our mundane lives as, you know, plebes who don't know how to, <laughs> who don't know how to hack reality. Uh, so we're going to move on to our mailbag. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hey, uh, Danielle, what's... What's wrong with your dog there? Oh, yeah, you know, that's just how he gets when he's bored. He he likes to make sounds like he's dying. It's it's kind of his thing, I guess. Well... Yeah, you know, I've been looking into this service called BarkBox, which sends monthly boxes of fun toys and treats and things I could kind of use to get him out of his funk. You know, that sounds pretty good. Maybe you should try it. I have found out that if you sign up at getbarkbox.com weekend, you can get a month of BarkBox for free. And a portion of the proceeds goes to adoption charities. Okay, I'm writing this down for you and for your dog. Go to getbarkbox.com weekend for a free month of BarkBox when you sign up for a plan. It's a deal. Alrighty, we have several awesome, wonderful letters this week. First one comes in from Justin. Justin writes, Regarding the conversation about the lack of women in strategy games, I found it odd that they didn't count turn-based strategy games. Not counting the big names like Dota or League of Legends, turn-based games arguably make up the largest audience of strategy gamers from big hitters like Civilization to Fire Emblem or Nippon Ichi games. My younger sister offered me some insight uh, when she asked me about Stellaris, a game I have little interest in, but she seemed genuinely excited about it. To her, the biggest hurdle isn't gameplay, it's the presentation. She's no stranger to complex games, but the lore surrounding the game is what initially draws her in, whether it's Fire Emblem with its colorful characters or Stellaris' race creation. History games leave no room for fiction, and the real-time strategy market seems dominated by history. Corroborating your argument of the vocal audience demanding more unnecessary features, designers of war games can enter a death spiral of upholding bad game design in the name of, quote, historical accuracy, unquote. And the often gross arguments you hear supporting historical accuracy are the very thing that chase people away from historical games. Alt history seems difficult to market without some kind of gimmick. The Nazis won, American Civil War, but with mechs. And war gamers constantly crave the same conflicts. I don't need another World War II or Punic Wars game. Where's the Spanish Civil War or French Resistance? Until the westernization of the 20th century, African women were not only the leaders of villages, but they took up arms to defend them. Where are those conflicts in gaming? 
Strategy games could stand to be more personable. I know more women into politics, heavy board games like Twilight Struggle or the Counterinsurgency series over the traditional hex and counter simulations. There's a group of live action role players called National Security Decision Making Game that hosts historic fiction LARPs where players assume the roles of decision makers in Russia or the Middle East. These events are at least one-quarter women who really get into the spirit of playing political leaders over disembodied generals coldly pushing units around. If war games need to be more interactive and social to attract a more diverse audience, then I welcome it. Justin. That's uh, that's a really interesting series of points. I wasn't aware of uh, National Security Decision Making Game, uh, which is a hell of a name. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> that's but awesome. that, sounds, that sounds really awesome. Uh, I, I think... I am sort of amazed that like the coin series would have uh, many women who are into it. Like, I just get curious about the the things in this letter that that Justin has been exposed to makes me wonder if he isn't part of some sort of weird cluster based on his job or <laughs> academic pursuits. Nice, yeah. Because uh, the coin games are really fascinating, uh, but I don't think most people would ever really be that into them uh because like the the coin series is really big among uh board gamers i think because they're so they're a fascinating series of board games that actually go a long way to sort of solving the problems with representing asymmetric conflict uh in in a single system uh and they're very very clever uh it's it's just kind of amazing to me to think that uh this would be attracting a large a, a significant audience of women's women given that i think it feels like it's already like starting from such a small subset of uh board and war gamers uh to begin with but historical accuracy i think that I kind of I, like I, I kind of agree, like yeah. especially, and that's not just like a gender issue, but like you know, it's that it's that Louis that Louis ZK bit, right? Where where it's like, look, if you, like if you're a white male, like time travel's awesome, but if you're anyone else, it's kind of garbage. <laughs> yeah, uh, and yeah. that's kind of what a lot of historical gaming is kind of offering you. Like, well, here's your here's your time machine back to. And unless you're someone, you know, as, in the same sort of privileged position as me and a lot of war gamers, like a lot of that stuff uh, either isn't awesome to go back to or it kind of consciously tries to say, well, you weren't there. Uh, yeah. Like someone like you couldn't have been there. Uh, so that does seem pr- like that's that's a, a big that's that's a big hurdle. And. The problem is also, Danielle, I like historical accuracy to an extent. Like, so the the debate around um, Battlefield One mm-hmm. about like how it, like there there weren't like it, like I think what was it they had female characters but they took them out or something like that or yeah there was or some character whole models. controversy yeah 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 so as far as multiplayer like I don't really care it you know like absolutely like by all means like have have women like soldier avatars and stuff but what did bother me was this notion that in the name of our sort of modern view on like gender equity. Uh, that because you can find exceptional cases of women serving in combat roles in like World War One and like and it was way less exceptional depending on what kind of what theater you were talking about, right? Yeah. yeah. But like at the same time, I would find it really sort of startling if like really startling if I'm sort of playing a game and it's like the Western Front of World War Two, World War One, and suddenly like a bunch of british tommies are 
women. I'd be like, well, that's okay. So, so now we're in, now we're in fantasy history land. And that would, that would bother me a little bit. Or it wouldn't bother me. It's just it, suddenly it's not a world, whatever it is, it's not a World War I game. Uh, is yeah. kind of how it would feel. And so I, I'm of two minds about this. On the one hand, like, I, I, I sort of, I, I like a bit of historical accuracy in my games because like, I'm, I'm in this privileged position where I want to, <laughs> by all means, let me at that time machine. Uh, on the other hand, though, like, I, I absolutely think it is one of the reasons that uh, some of my favorite hobbies are, like, really profoundly lacking in diversity and uh, and and then also a lot of times historical accuracy is brought out lazily uh, and sort of to defend assumptions we make about the past that are 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 basically bullshit. Yeah, I mean there were again not a historian, but there certainly are examples as as Justin points out here of of societies where women did actually fight and uh, did take up arms. You know, Spartan women took up arms when the men were gone and they kicked all kinds of ass and so on and so forth. So th- there have been women who fought in history. It's just not in World War I necessarily as the, the norm, as you're saying, for sure. Um, it is a really, really, really difficult topic because on one hand, I am also really interested in, in diversity and, um, you know, I think it's pretty fucking important to have women in all kinds of different roles. That's kind of my soapbox, you know. Um, but I also don't want it to be at, at sort of the cost of, like, completely whitewashing how shitty periods of history were. You know, the, the thing you're saying about, like, oh, okay, if a whole bunch of soldiers came up and they were they're all women and it was no big deal. That would be super cool in a, in a modern setting or a, you know, futuristic setting. But if it was like, no, 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 this is 1942. That's how it was. You know, there's actually this awesome, kind of really wonderful show. I I think it's kind of wonderful. It's called Bomb Girls. And it was a Canadian TV series about women who worked in a factory uh, making bombs in in Canada, in some small town in Canada. And that show had just this really beloved characters. It was, you know, it was a world of mostly women. And there were were dudes in their lives, for sure. But, like, you know, their town, most of the men went off to fight. Most of the men of, you know, sort of, like able-bodied young men were kind of gone and it it sort of shows how women were also like really strong and really you know kind of doing their part um and you know there was a point where one of the women was injured she she took a hit to the face basically in in sort of making a bomb she got kind of like hooked on something it was really gross and you know this the sort of floor manager woman who's like the manager who's you know she's like their commander she went to the hospital and she fought so hard for like no you give this woman the same surgery you'd give any man she 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 was in the line of duty when she got hurt you know it was like this really great like yeah you know she did her part for as, for as awesome as that show was and i loved it um and I loved its sort of semi-almost utopian vision. Uh, it did do a little bit of the of the kind of whitewashing of history, like making history look a little more equal and awesome than it was. Because there's definitely a subplot with a uh, with a black character, and you know there would have been a lot more fucking racism <laughs> in the actual yeah. 1940s <laughs> yeah. than there was with this character. There's a subplot that I loved and I adored. About a gay woman, uh, one of the women who who is at the plant is is queer, and she meets like this army recruiter lady who's also queer, and it's like they fall in love, and like one of her friends is like totes cool with it right away, and it's kind of like, dude, that is such a beautiful thing, and I and I love that, I truly love that, but like, 
man, that is not how that would have gone down <laughs> in the actual 40s. Like that's it's it's kind of like saying, hey, things weren't so bad. Right. And and there's a danger in that, too. And for sure. There, there's a bit of the um, like so many of these stories, the characters all basically have modern views. Yeah, stuff. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, and and then it's like it's sort of the Agent Carter thing, right? Where like you just have a a every like everyone's a plucky like modern feminist in a lot of ways, and right. then there's a bunch of dumb buffoons who are like cartoon sexists and such, <laughs> yeah. uh, who just need to be told like, nope, women can be in charge. And I think there's there's two things. One is that it sort of assumes that like these these uh, like bigotry existed because people were dumb, uh, right. which is comforting. But this is I think one of the myths that allows bigotry to continue to flourish is yeah. like yeah. no like really smart, brilliant, accomplished people uh, could believe some really really awful things. That's the power of culture. Uh, and then the other part of it is. Wow, if only women back then had just stood up for themselves and said, No, I'm going to like I'm going to do this job. I'm yeah. gonna be in charge. Uh, then we'd have had equality uh, ages ago. It was there it was there for the taking. And yes, there would have been some shittiness, but all you need to do was speak up and be determined and plucky, and everything would have been fine. Uh, and and boy, is that a crock of shit. Yeah. Oh yeah. It, that's it's it's honestly kind of disrespectful to those who who actually fought and and you know possibly died or, or suffered for sort of what we have now. So yeah, it's it's God is so complicated because I I so want to believe that this woman could be friends with a black dude and have a have a girlfriend who was gay in the forties and everybody was cool. I want to believe that. It's just. It hurts. Yeah. It, it like actually hurts more than it helps. So actually, yeah. I guess to an extent, maybe I'm really inconsistent on this because that bothers me <laughs> less. Because the thing is, I always think of it as like, man, it's got to be fucking exhausting. Like, if, if like if you're a black actor, for instance, and there's like an mm-hmm. awesome period thing, it's like, what's your role going to be? Well, you're going to be the oppressed, mistreated, right. black, and then insert like noun here, right? Like you're yeah. going to be the black, and then whatever whatever that character is, and uh, like it's like your character sort of exists to show how shitty things uh, were back then, uh, and also comfort modern audiences about how great things are are, are now by comparison. <laughs> yeah, and so, right. like, I kind of like there's this part of me that like is getting increasingly cool, with just like you know, what, fuck it, like make your period piece and just have it so that like. By and large, like, sure, what the hell? Like, society looks super integrated and, like, forward-looking by, like, 1940. I'm just really here for the cars and the dresses and the music. Um, (laughs) And what you do beyond that, I'm not really that concerned about. Uh, So, I guess, like, it's... But it's weird. But if you do that, then, with, like... like with a war I care about, for instance, where it's like, <laughs> no, no, I'm sorry, but like there wasn't, there wasn't a lady in the trench next to like Siegfried Sassoon. That's just not how that went down. Um, and and it's just it's super like I, I am wildly inconsistent uh, on that point. But I do think like the other part of this that, that Justin brings out that I think is important is that we tell the same stories over and over again. We complain yes. about this all the time on Three Moves Ahead that like yeah. we've covered the daylights out of uh, the Western Front of World War II, for instance. Um, but like you don't see much ever done with Spanish Civil War. 
um, not a lot done with like uh, colonial conflicts and and, and such, uh, or even the things we do cover, like the way I think most people imagine the Eastern Front of World War II is a bunch of like you know st- you know stolid you know grave. Uh, you know, Russian men sort of marching mm. lockstep into German machine gun fire, um, and and there it's like, well, actually, that that front was was super integrated on a on a gender front. Like, yeah. I mean, not yeah, only was sure. that part of the Soviet uh, state's ethos, uh, but also like things got like there was such a huge need for manpower to fight the Germans that eventually like it got liberalized pretty quickly to just it be like human power. power as well. Yeah, yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> and so you had pretty extensive, like very extensive use of like women in combat roles uh, yeah. and, and sort of integrated, I think, like, I don't think they were detached in special units either, but the, but the point is like, you don't see those stories told. Right. Um, and maybe it's because we, in this weird way, Telling these parts of history that people know less, it's harder to make people believe it was real. You know what I mean? Sure. Like you can sure. show, yeah. you can yeah. show like a bunch of like sad Englishmen in a trench in World War, and everyone's like, "Yep, yeah, that's World War One. That's <laughs> yeah. that's pretty much what it was." Uh, but I suspect, like, you know, if suddenly you show a bunch of uh, Japanese guys fighting the Germans in Italy. Uh, you know, as part of the, the, the Japanese American division, like that, like people are going to be like, well, really? I don't know. That seems yeah. pretty far fetched. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the more we're talking about this, the more I think, like, yeah, you know, that might be the answer. <laughs> Tell those and, and fucking mean it and do it with the kind of research that went into, you know, something like Valiant Hearts. <laughs> have have your you know have your little thesis and have your footnotes too and and show people god damn it this is real that's that sounds like a yeah we solved it rob i think we solved it you know it's it's fantastic well as we've learned from so many historical dramas it just takes a little pluck a little gumption a little determination danielle (laughs) you too can have a beautiful utopian 1943 oh my god uh, I think this next letter uh, from Rob from Boston actually covers some of the same ground. It does, uh, yeah. Regarding women being able to see themselves in these roles in history. And I I, I tend to agree. I think that's, again, we, we I think we touched on some of this. Like, a lot of his, the way we tell history is like, and then the white men did this. And it was right. great. Yeah. Uh, except some of these white men weren't good. And they were bad. And they had to be stopped. Fortunately, the good ones, the good white guys won. Uh, which is not going to be a terribly compelling narrative uh, if you're if you're a girl. and you're like not trying a white guy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, exactly. It's, if, if your role is consistently like, well, and what did people like me do during the revolution? Well, let me tell you about Molly Pitcher bringing water to the men while they fought. That's right. heroic too. Yeah, no, uh, that's yeah. that's not going to be as that's not going to be as attention grabbing. Yeah. Um, just a uh, just a little uh, note from Walker regarding my anecdote about like things I learned from racing games. Uh, Walker points out you don't need to fork over big bucks to Skip Barber or other racing schools to get practice dealing with your car in extreme conditions. Many local and regional car clubs host events that let you practice how to recover from skids, deal with spins, and otherwise manage your car as you reach the limits of what you and it can easily manage. Uh, The easiest way to find these is searching for autocross 
and then whatever your, your region is and seeing what comes up. Uh, there's likely a number of different choices and what they can do for you will vary wide, uh, wildly, but there's hopefully at least one in your area that's welcoming the newcomers and has a history of maintaining a, a good pool of instructors to help you out with coming to grips with your car. Uh, some will even have separate dedicated programs for driver skills that focus on the car control aspects of driver education. Um, that's something I did forget about uh, and does exist. I, when I tend to think of autocross, I tend to think of it as like a weekend hobbyist thing uh, for yeah. like, performance driving. Uh, but I, I didn't really I didn't realize there was this, uh, this this teaching element to it as well, which I think is. Uh, like, I, like you know, from from my anecdote the other week, I think that's crucially important, right? Because like any idiot can drive a car when things yeah. are fine and everything proceeds uh, as predicted. Like the same way, I suspect most people with uh, you know a reasonable amount of flight training could uh, handle a plane on perfectly clear, still days uh, yeah. where where everything works just fine. Uh, but the problem is that that. Nothing like nothing is fine all the time, and right. uh, it, it is kind of astonishing to me that like when I was sort of given the legal right to drive a car, it was basically I, I answered a questionnaire reasonably well, and then mm-hmm. fucked up parking on an empty street, uh, and a very tired right. civil servant just looked at me with this like uh, with uh, the, with these pitying eyes and was like, "It's fine, kid. Just just go. Let's yeah. go. You get you get you get your license." Which is cool, but it, it is kind of astonishing to me that like most like when you're given your 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 driver's license, like chances are you are woefully under like unprepared for anything uh, to happen that's unexpected uh, while you're behind the wheel of that car. Yeah, it's legitimately terrifying. Like as an as an EMT, <laughs> I am so much more afraid of cars than like most other things in this world and it's oh man it's, is that because like they're hazard as you work or you've just seen the aftermath of of cars and yeah people? it's 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 kind of both it's just the idea that like man <laughs> i won't go into like super fucked up stuff that i've seen but let's just say that um i had a call last week where a guy got hit by a subway car and got pulled under the tracks and you know, and he's fine. He's actually a lot more fine than I thought he would be. I was prepared for a lot worse. Uh, so, but wait, that's not a car. Like, you, know, you can't no, be no, like the cars okay. are scary. And then I, I wasn't going to go into this, but oh, I. No. It was my first sort of big trauma of this nature. So I was really like preparing myself. I was like, oh man, oh God, okay. You know what? It's going to be fine. You're going to be fine. Deep breaths, you know, ABCs. Like I was like, you know, mentally preparing myself. And we got onto the scene and there was like hundreds of people because this is at a subway stop, like right near where I live and like hundreds of people. And they're all looking at you like, you know what you're doing because you're in a uniform and you're holding equipment. And I was like, shit, okay, okay, shit. And uh, my my ex, uh, who was a doctor, was once on a bus that ran over a cyclist, and it was truly gruesome and really upset her. And that was, you know, a woman who had done a lot of work with trauma and yeah. seen a lot of dead bodies. And I was expecting that. I was like, okay, it's going to be like that. It's going to be like that. No, he was he was a little fucked up, but way more okay. And uh, much more horrific things happen <laughs> because. Cars are a lot more unpredictable than public transportation. And this is why I'm really afraid of cars and the things okay. that they can do to people. 
Okay, I was like, I, I was like, that's a pretty broad definition of car, Danielle. Like, if, if no, you no, were, I know like, it was actually going somewhere. If you've somewhere. been like in that like homicide life in the street episode, uh, oh. you know what I'm talking about, right? The one with the yeah, subway. I sure do. Yeah. I sure do. Uh, amazing hour of television, by the way. <laughs> uh, but. Yeah, don't like, fuck yeah, with subway cars actually. either. Like, no, don't fuck with those look, either. It's just. Look, just don't. Like, what? Like, what is with the obsession with, like, getting on that yellow line? You, you like, yeah. why? Don't why? fuck with that. Because you could really die in a bad way. It's just. I just am more afraid of the unpredictability of multiple things that go really, really fast as opposed to like one thing that can go really, really fast in one situation. By the way, that's the thing I can't get used to out here in LA is that it's a right turn. Eight lane traffic. Oh my God. It's a right turn state, right turn on red. Oh Um, yeah. And I'm like, are you people insane? Like it's like, it's so easy to miss something coming out of your right side. Uh, Like, like a person. Um, Or a bike. Yeah, it's just it's it's yeah. it's madness. But like cars are king here, and they can do what they want. And so they they just like if the, if there's nothing around, they just they just make the right turn. Uh, and I used to I grew up like you know Indiana is is that way as well because if there's mm. a safety regulation that Indiana uh, can avoid introducing, Indiana will avoid <laughs> introducing that that right. safety regulation. That's just how the Hoosiers roll. <laughs> yeah, um, but. You know, I go to I get out to uh, to to Boston, and it's very much like, no, you like, are you kidding me? Like, no, you wait for the green, uh, you wait for that 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 sidewalk to clear, and then you go. Uh, and here, it's just kind of this. All right, like, I hope the driver sees me. I'm gonna step out, uh, make eye contact, sort of wave. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh it's, my god. It's crazy. Oh, it's so terrifying. <laughs> on a on a slightly. Um, Less uh, gruesome note, I suppose. <laughs> Nick K writes in, Hey, R&D. I enjoy hearing your recent mentions of Pokemon Go. I've loved reading all of the news surrounding the Pokemon Go app, whether it's about how Pokemon Go users have found dead bodies during walks. Sorry, I guess it was actually gruesome. That was an editorial note there. This Back show. to the letter. Damn it. <laughs> I'm so sorry, everyone. Oh, God. Back to Nick K's letter. Scaled the walls of zoos for Pokemon or have been robbed by savvy criminals using lures at key locations. These incidents uh, <laughs> fascinate me far more than the app itself. Even as a Pokemon fan, I think Pokemon Go mechanics are pretty bare. And apart from the Pokemon you can find, the game doesn't offer much variety past its first 10 minutes. What instances have you been where you've had no interest in a game, but the news around it or people's reactions to it fascinated you? P.S. He has a second part. To add to the multitude of Pokemon Go stories, a coworker and I recently witnessed an assault while on a Pokemon Go walk. We stayed with the victim until the cops arrived and gave our statements as witnesses. The victim was rattled, but otherwise mostly okay. The whole incident was messed up, but it was interesting in that my coworker and I would not have been there otherwise. My coworker did not catch the Zubat he had been after. <laughs> oh my god. Oh wow. Um First of all, yes, uh, I, I have completely fallen off of Pokemon Go and being interested in the game almost at all, but I'm still like sort of semi-interested in, in the weird stuff that happens around it. I actually went to a Pokemon Go meetup uh, recently where it was it was actually organized by uh, Jeff Ramos from Polygon, and he, he brought all kinds of cute little Pokemon toys and gave them out, and that's totally what I was there for, so... Um, <laughs> Uh, I think uh, I definitely have this where I'm interested in the culture around a game, if not the game whatsoever. Um, and it's, it's a, uh, 
I, I, I am sort of interested in esports in this way without honestly having that much interest or, or experience in sort of like the actual you know, mechanics, I mean, specifically with something like Dota. Um, I just don't have the 80 hours to put into understanding the first fucking thing about that game, but I do get interested in watching, like, you know, the beginner streams at the International or something like that. And I do get interested in sort of the culture of, of like, what it is to be, like, a new type of, of sport, a new type of competition that's actually sort of coming up in the world and getting all this attention and... Yeah, I, I'm like interested in that that sort of general culture around it. I'm I'm interested in as somebody who's kind of a sports fan who is watching a, another type of of sports entertainment be created. So that uh, for me is probably my analog. <laughs> Although nothing can really beat that story of like trying to help somebody out because they got hurt and and you didn't get your Zubat. That's that's pretty intense. <laughs> Yeah, I think like game fandoms that kind of fascinate me, but the game fundamentally like terrifies me. Uh, Dwarf Fortress. Oh sure. Um, yeah. Like every time I've tried to get into it, I'm like, ugh. Like <laughs> this is like this is just going to be awful. Trying to learn how all this works, uh, I refuse. Uh, although our producer on Three Was Ahead, uh, Michael Hermes, has taken issue with this. Uh, every time I say something like this, I get a passive aggressive email uh, in my inbox a day or two later. <laughs> that's like. Uh, you know, just so you know, there's a lot of cosmetic mods for Dwarf Fortress that make it way more approachable. Uh-huh. I don't think I, the the unapproachability of Dwarf Fortress is very overstated. Um, like, okay, sure, whatever you say, dude. How do I install these? Oh well, here's 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 the twelve steps. Now, uh, yeah, Dwarf Fortress fandom uh, fascinates me. I think, um, like we talked about on the show, I think Dark Souls fandom is actually really interesting oh, yeah. uh, to me. I find the the appeal to that game uh, really, the the way people relate to it and and the the way it changes their like what they want out of play uh, is is I find fascinating. Um, Dota, not so much, uh, and I think I think part of it is just that maybe a lot of Dota people, even by the standards of like nerd subcultures, a lot of Dota people seem even more up their own ass. Uh, and <laughs> Sean, Sean just got very upset. I feel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, it's like, I understand, like, I understand that this is an incredibly nuanced game. And like every, the, the, during the, during the month, uh, every year when I really care about Dota uh, around the international, yeah. <laughs> uh, it is really cool when like my friends sort of explain to me, well, okay, here are, all the weird ways that these two heroes and then the itemizations they chose and then the powers they used at that moment, here are the weird ways those interacted uh, to create this like insane, uh, this insane play. Uh, that stuff is really cool. Uh, but I think, I think my issue with, uh, with, with Dota fandom to an extent is it's like, sometimes it seems a bit like medieval monks translating manuscripts and <laughs> sure. just like telling you, believe, like, believe me, this is the yeah. most important work, you know, in the world. But I guess the medieval monk at least had a case. You know what I right. mean? Like, yeah. I think there was at least an argument there. Like, yeah, okay, you're kind of, hey, you, what, you're translating uh, Plato out of Arabic back in the, that's cool. That, that does seem it's pretty, important. It's pretty useful. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, whereas... You know, I, I kind of feel like with with Dota, there, there's this, you just, 
with Dota, I, I feel like you're so late to the party that nobody even wants to like discuss it with you. (laughs) And ultimately it's a MOBA and yeah, I don't know. I just like that, that I find uh, a pretty huge, that, that I find a pretty huge turnoff is, is that, um, there's never a shortage of people willing to tell you how amazingly deep and rewarding and exciting Dota is. But then there's always a shortage of people who can actually explain it in a coherent fashion that makes it sound remotely appealing. Sure. Yeah, that is a rare and special skill that we do not see often. Uh, Okay, so uh, from Zenith in San Francisco. Hearing Rob talk about the world of competitive cycling was a surreal experience for me as someone who generally couldn't care less about sports or physical activities. I'm pretty much a gamer through and through, but everything you were saying about bicycle racing resonated for some reason. At first I thought it was because of my own cycling life experience, but that doesn't track. I'm a bike commuter, not a racer. Suddenly I realized why I knew so much about the pack psychology and drafting that was being talked about. Uh, I watched all of a really awesome anime called Yawamushi Pedal. Okay, who who is this? <laughs> it's Amanda. Danielle, did you? God damn Amanda it. Amanda did this. <laughs> no, this is not happening. I'm not having this on, on my show. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, turns out that despite dramatizing things, the series is actually pretty true to life with all of those rivals turned temporary allies for a stretch mechanics <laughs> you were talking about tied to fun over-the-top characters. Uh... Don't know why I'm telling you all this, but I watched it on Crunchyroll, so maybe you can get some sponsorship out of it or something. Uh, okay, Thanks, so, so Zenith. <laughs> I, guess we'll, I guess we'll just call you Zenith for the purposes of this letter. Um, I guess maybe I need to give this anime a try. The yeah, dude with the worm tongue cool. freaks me way out, though. I can't what? do it like that. Have you seen pictures of this? Wait, is he the demon boy? Is there a demon boy? I, I don't know. He, I think there's a demon boy. If I'm not getting this confused, <laughs> in real life, friend of the show, Amanda Cosmos, has tried to get me into this anime before. And no, like, she's been she's been evangelizing this for like a year and a half. Yeah, and yeah. And I, like, I don't think it's entirely healthy. It's it's pretty. Uh, look, I I will try it because it's a sports thing, and I do like sports things, especially if they're about endurance sports. As a, as a runner. You know, I, I get excited about my, my brethren in swimming and cycling. <laughs> and I and I want to check it out. If there's a demon boy with a with a weird tongue, then, you know, I, that's cool. You know, yeah, I've, I've, like, had, I've, had I've had weirder teammates. I have had weirder teammates in my life. So in, in yeah. shots from this in shots from this anime, like there's all these like traditional like anime teen boy characters. And then there's this one dude. Who like just opens his mouth into a gaping maw, and his tongue is the shape of a giant worm. Yeah, I think he's uh, a demon. And it's apparently endless. Yeah, um, okay. And it just freaks me. Uh, it just freaks me the hell out because it's like it's such a departure from the style. Of the rest of the series are, from what I can tell, it's just like <laughs> oh, like yeah. it's just, what the, it's just like what the hell? Like what the hell? You're just it's a it's a cycling an it's a cycling anime. It's a it's a it's a bike anime, and then and then there's this shit. Uh, so no, I don't. I don't it's, like it, and I don't think it belongs. That's pretty intense, right uh, there. It's a little looking intense. at it. Yeah. Uh, I'll just say. Uh, I'll just read Michael's uh, email real quick, just because okay. he brought up a couple good points. Um, Rob commented on teammates in the Tour de France, uh, you know, being used to uh, just to set his pace, and why can't the cyclist just do that by himself? 
Uh, a real thing in cycling is drafting. Uh, there is a significant energy conservancy uh, gained by drafting on the wheel of another cy- cyclist. It isn't psychosomatic. It's a real thing. These teammates are dragging their leader along, not just giving them a psychological boost or acting as their pace car. Equally importantly, uh, teammates act as threats to challenges. They can chase down breakaways, sacrificing their energy by upping the pace of the entire peloton while still protecting the endurance of their team leader. And remember, uh, rotate out who's tanking, uh, who's tanking themselves day by day as you're cycling for weeks. Mm. Uh, further, different riders have different talents. The best climbing teammates will sherpa the leader over the mountains, for example, while the rest will conserve energy at a lower heart rate. Uh, but drafting, the first time you're on a 20 mile per hour pace on a 100 mile uh, ride, you're, uh, you're making all but certain you don't fall off the back of the line if you're struggling as you will never catch back up if you drop. Oh, man, that is so cool. There's a tiny bit of this in long distance running. There is actual drafting that uh, folks do. But for the most so, part, pacing and running is is. Yeah. Mostly like, hey, you're on pace. Somebody needs to keep you on pace in longer races. Yeah, so I'm embarrassed I didn't think of that. Because like, uh, uh, you know, drafting is part of all auto racing uh, yeah. oh, and yeah. motorcycle racing. Like, that's absolutely. But it didn't occur to me like that for cyclists, it would be such an important uh, element as well. But of course, it makes it makes perfect sense. But yeah, I just love this. I, like, I love yeah. the tactics of like somebody's on a breakaway and the, the, the main competitor sort of stays back to, to husband his energy. Yeah. But his teammates go like a pack of wolves and run oh, that breakaway so cool. down. Uh, that that stuff is that stuff is awesome. Um, I was really disappointed because I, I had this awesome like Sunday. It was like Saturday or Sunday. I can't remember which day the Tour de France ended. Uh, but I was like, I'm gonna watch the final stage. It's gonna be great. Yeah. And then I tune in, and the commentators are like, so as we all know. Nobody races on the last day of the Tour de France. And I was like, son of a bitch. <laughs> like, it's just, apparently it's just not done. Uh, the Tour de France is basically over uh, by the, the, the 20th stage. The, the, I think it's 21 stages. Uh, the final stage, the ride back to Paris, and then uh, doing laps to, around the uh, Champs-Élysées. Um, that is just kind of a formality, I guess, unless it's like a super close race. Uh, but, but even then, like nobody tries wow. to make nobody tries to make like genuine like race overtakes uh, i had no idea about that either (laughs) yeah it was i was daniel just imagine like i was sitting down so excited i had like my 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 bowl of 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 cocoa pebbles i was like this is gonna be a treat it's gonna be awesome and watch (laughs) racing in the morning and then they're like yeah so basically this is just a victory lap and like chris Froome, but like like it's just an hour of like chris Froome posing with his teammates on the back of his bike i'm like okay this is uh this sucks like this is oh, this is awful. But Paris is really pretty, and these these commentators are pretty comforting. So I guess I'll listen to it. Oh man, that's so sad. <laughs> but I guess yeah, at, at least we'll always have Paris. I guess you and you said that to the Tour de France, right? Yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. All right, on that uh, beautiful note, I think it's time for us to talk about our weekend projects. So, Rob. Other than the Tour de France being a little disappointing at the end, what have you been watching or reading or super into lately? That's a great question, Daniel. <laughs> Do you want me to go first? Go for it. Yeah, how about you lead off? <laughs> um, I want so badly to make a race. Not race. Oh, wow. Race, what's, race. what's about happening? Holy what's, what's shit. Happening here? I <laughs> wanted to make a joke about racing as a, a thing because I've been watching season three of BoJack Horseman. But you know what? I'm just going to wrap that all up and say... <laughs> 
Well, I have been watching and sh really enjoying the crap out of season three of BoJack Horseman. Uh, have you ever watched the show, Rob? No, uh, we've discussed that. We've discussed my weird prejudices about art styles, right? And cartoons. We have. Okay. Yeah, your your feelings about American uh, animation are right. And and BoJack looks kind of like. It pushes watercolor vomit, probably. Too. Yeah, it yeah. doesn't. It looks. It concerns me, but yeah. I've heard it's great. It's it's pretty damn good. It's it's like you know everybody kind of says the thing about like oh it's Californication but great. Um, it, and that's not entirely wrong, but it's also so much weirder because obviously there's this whole aspect of you know half of the people in this world. So it's you know it's based on Hollywood and an actor, you know, a sort of out of work actor who's he had a big hit TV show in the '90s, but he's also a horse, and half the people in this world are also you know uh, bipedal animals. Uh, you know, his agent is a cat. And uh, you know, one of his friends, who's sort of a rival, but also a friend, is a dog named Mr. Peanut Butter. It's just an incredibly well-written, uh, really resonant, really, really funny show. Um, you know, uh, in season three, they, they've made a few changes. Bojack is actually, you know, kind of... Uh, had some success in his life, and he's, uh, you know, he's he's been in a movie that did well, and so on and so forth. So that's sort of how it begins. There's this whole thing. He was in Secretariat, where he was a a uh, a, a famous racing horse, and it's like a you know a really traditional and and really uh, very you know, feel good Ron Howard style kind of movie about a, a historical figure who is also like a race horse. So that's that's the joke. Uh, but I'm enjoying so much of the third season uh, for, for a couple of funny reasons. First, I'm noticing so much more of the sort of background gags. It's the, the show is, is great on its surface level. It's, it's smart. It's, it's punchy. It's well-written. Uh, but there's also so much going on sort of in the background of any given scene. There's so many little Easter eggs and little jokes and sort of funny things that are happening. And I'm like really, really, really getting into those things and enjoying them because there's, there's even threads and through lines with those sort of elements that are they're just really fun. There's just so much kind of like texture uh, and humor in the show. And also, and this is the weirdest thing, I am enjoying the show even more now that I have pets and I'm sort of noticing these hilarious little habits that the dog and cat characters have. And I'm like, oh, that's like when my dog does it. It's just something I never noticed before because I, I never had pets in my life actually until So the characters have now. like realistic animal texts. And they have hilarious, yeah, like really cute little things like Princess Carolyn, who is the agent, uh, Bojack's agent, who is a cat. She'll like, when, when she drinks her coffee, she kind of sips at it the way a cat does, like with her yeah. little tongue and oh, kind of, okay. you know. Now you're, you're winning me over. It's this adorable, is, yeah. I, I, I love this stuff. Like every time like in Fantastic Mr. Fox, one of the animal characters like started to do like a, like, animal behavior without breaking character yeah. like i just i i just adored that yeah there's oh god there's, there's so many tiny little things like that and it's it's just beautiful you know mr peanut butter in his sleep kind of does that little doggy twitch with his back paws right. and oh god i i love it and it, and it's never kind of like Haha, look at our joke you know it's it's one of those things that's that's just adorable and it's just kind of there if you if you want it so Season three, Bojack, highly recommended. I'm about halfway through, so if it turns to utter shit, I, I will let you know in a subsequent episode. But uh, I've always been a fan of the show, and uh, I think it's it's doing really cool, uh, really cool things with the third season. So you discussed Hollywood and yes. uh, and and show about like uh, washed up actors and such. I need to proceed very carefully here. <laughs> I was recently. Enjoying, and not for the first time, <laughs> C 
season two of Entourage. Oh. <laughs> and sure, like okay. a thing to know about me uh, is that I actually dragged a friend to the Entourage movie. Oh my god, like, Rob! I was like, <laughs> I was like, Drew, <laughs> Vinny, and the boys need us. Oh my god! So we went. We went to that goddamn movie. Yeah. I Entourage has always occupied this weird space for me. Uh, by the end, I actually didn't even like the series very much. Uh, mm-hmm. But I always had a certain fondness for it because it was it was wild. It was a wildly comforting show in a lot of ways because it was it's like it's like it's like booba for douchebags. <laughs> like, it, it, like it always ends the same way, or like Teletubbies, right? Like it's just yeah. like, it, like it's just gonna end the same way, and then the same thing's gonna happen the very next time around, like again, and then everything will be fine. Yeah. But I was watching season two, and I was thinking, shit, this is actually good. Like this is a this is actually a good show. Yeah. And I was kind of astonished because by the end, like Entourage was just kind of this thing. I had this weird, twisted relationship with, and like it was this, this sort of marriage that was shambling on out of habit. But I was thinking about season two, and I was thinking about like why it worked and and why I liked the show. You know, to an extent, almost to the end, why why I invested anything in it. And I think season two, what what I would say about like what I would say about Entourage in season two, and to like a lesser extent, maybe season five. Is that when that show was good, there was always the sense of fragility. It, it <laughs> fainted at the fragility of their success and their fame and the ease of their life. Yeah. That Vinny Chase, you know, Hollywood superstar, uh, all that could go away in a heartbeat. That it could just, you know, a bad choice or two and suddenly you're a joke. And it's all over. And the friends, the the on the entourage, who are sort of like going along for this ride, are nobody. They're living this like complete dream life, but they're just they're just meathead assholes. Yeah. Uh, who don't really like have anything going on for themselves. So they're just kind of um, going along in this guy's wake. And I think in season two, what I really enjoyed about the show was that you've got this sense at times of like the frustrations of these, these longstanding old friendships uh, sort of cracking under the pressure of like really high stakes, like life decisions, career decisions. Um, you know, that you're everyone's sort of an adolescent juvenile brat, but <laughs> the stakes that they're operating, the, the stakes of, of their lives right now are suddenly very different. Um, and also in that season, like, Ari Gold is not just this automatic, like, super agent who always wins, always gets his man, but is instead uh, a terribly insecure, terrified, um, you know, partner at an agency where suddenly he's being forced out. Yeah. Uh, and suddenly he realizes he no one is loyal to him, that all his power, all his authority and prestige was was also an illusion and in the space of a day is stripped away from him. Uh, and so in the, like so, so I was watching that show like in like this is sort of this is the defense of entourage that I'm too lazy to write uh, <laughs> that I'm too like that I'm too lazy to put anywhere else. Uh, the thing I would say is like in those early seasons, particularly season two, I think the show had an outsider's view on the characters to an extent like it yeah. it was sort of commenting on them even as it followed their you know followed their lives. 
And I think what bothered me about the way it ended, and the movie was just this to the nth degree, is that somewhere along the line, it decided all of that was somehow cute or charming, that the Mm -hmm. characters were like heroes. Uh, And once that once that change happened, the series was dead. Um, But in those moments where the series is sort of acutely aware, fame, you know, incredible wealth, incredible luxury, um, nobody really deserves that. Nobody's really entitled to it. Uh, And when the series was aware of that, it was good. And once it lost sight of that, it was, it was one of the worst and most repulsive things on TV. (laughs) But so, yeah, I was watching season two and I was like, I can't believe it, but no, I wasn't insane to get this far into the show. Uh, yeah. It was there was a point there where it was where it was pretty entertaining television. I I had a coworker once who had a huge crush on uh, Turtle, just a huge crush. She she was like, yeah, I like him. Yeah, Jeffrey Farrar, I think. Special. Yeah, he's a special man. I uh, I don't. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I laughed. Yes, when you you admitted your dark secret there, but. I've always been a little curious about that show because somebody once told me that it's actually not just the vulnerability, but that it that it sort of has like a a weird kind of kind of a earnest vibe about male friendship. Like, like yes. hey, you know what? We all love each other. And like, yeah, they act like total assholes. And that's that's not really my thing. Like that doesn't super excite me. But like the idea of like the way guys get close to each other, like the heterosexual guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I should specify that, but like the way straight guys kind of love each other in certain ways. Like it, it, that's, that's interesting to me. That's pretty cool. Um, I think that's true. And I think yeah. again, like when the show got bad, it was a, a case study in toxic masculinity. But. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I mean, I've only caught an episode here and there, so I, I'm not like an expert in it, but I've, it, from the things that I've read, I've, I've, heard that it gets pretty crappy it, by the end but yeah, it you gets know pretty bad. yeah, yeah. Uh, eventually it gives into like i don't know it, it just loses sight of what its gag is what its premise is and eventually it's just like no man sexism is cool yeah like yeah it gets pretty nasty i've, I've heard some of that so yeah that that does kind of suck but uh if you, if you ever want to watch uh something that is very much like Straight guys who were good friends who love each other that that kind of never goes near sexism. The second Magic Mike movie is a magical delight. Uh, magical delight. Yeah, sorry, I didn't even mean that one. But uh, uh, <laughs> that is Mike. a movie. It's a magical delight. Yeah, that's a movie about like kind of a group of of you know straight guys who are strippers. But don't worry, that's not their you know. They're they're straight. That's part we're of the not, ship. Yeah, we're, not, we're also not, we're not making assumptions about guys who are strippers. Right. Of course. I mean, it's. What, what I meant by that was you do not need to be someone who is attracted to men to get something out of that movie because it's genuinely about like real true friendship and being nice to each other and respecting women is a totally cool thing you can do and also be a really sexy dude. So that's... <laughs> See, uh, so with yeah. the exception of being a really sexy dude, it sounds a lot like the full Monty. Yeah, it is, I mean, it is. Uh, and the first movie kind of went way more into the sort of class ideas the second movie is way more of a like very feel-good very happy friendship road trip bro movie uh where the bro-y stuff is never gross like i i I actually reviewed that movie for polygon at the time it was like a year ago and like i um i went into it being like i like count down to the gay joke you know count down to the fat lady joke you know like just being gross and mean and it was like 
No, they they hit up a gay club like for fun because they their friends are gay and it's cool. Like and they dance there and it's awesome and they like women of all shapes and sizes and it's cool and it's it, like the most surprising movie I've ever seen in my life because of that because it was completely like a very positive kind of masculinity that's just like yeah, bro, it's all good. We love each other. It's nice. <laughs> Pretty amazing. And, uh, movies about friendship are awesome. Like yeah. nice things are awesome. I've been I've been putting off talking about this for ages because uh, I I really hope we can get like Evan Nar- Narcisse on yes, the, on the show yes, at some yes, point. Yes, yes, that'd be great. Uh, but like like the new Arch comics are just oh my god, they're the best thing. Yeah, like I find them so incredibly like comforting and heartwarming. And what's really interesting is like. I just I, I, like they make me a little angry because I was like, oh shit! If only it's been around when I was a teenager, oh yeah, and I would have been a better person because I would have realized like it was actually way easier to be like nice and cool and awesome than I believed in peak nineties bad boy angst uh, yeah. things like that. Uh, but yeah, uh, but yes, things things that are friendship is a fun and rewarding fiction fictional theme, uh, and I am all for. I'm all for cool things to showcase it. Hell yes. Even if they have, you know, demon boy cyclists in them, you know. It's no, let's not get crazy. Fr- fr- friendship. Danielle, get, get, <laughs> get a hold of yourself. <laughs> oh, man. So with that, I think it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by Chris Remo and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. So if you are enjoying the show and if you'd like to do us a, a huge favor, it's actually a tiny little thing, but it means a lot to us. If you want to write us a review on iTunes, that would be lovely. And if you want to share your love of the show or, you know, you don't have to love it. You can just like it and share it uh, with friends, family, whomever. It means so, so much to us. And we thank you for doing so. You can learn more about the show at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at idleweekend. For Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo wishing you the finest of idle weekends. I could talk about goofy movies for like 10 hours. <laughs> I almost went off on this tangent the moment uh, I brought up um, Full Monty. Yeah. Uh, what I find it like, there's three, it's like, it's like they're not even a trilogy, but there's the, these three movies cropped up out of Britain around the same time. Uh, the Van, Brassed mm. Off, and the, uh, the Full Monty. And only the Full Monty was really like a breakout hit. Yeah. Uh, but they're all, all of them, these movies about like unemployed British manufacturing workers yeah. uh, suddenly trying to like wrestle with the fact that like they're not supporting the family, uh, that their definition of like traditional manhood has sort of been stripped away from them. Um, and they just, uh, they're a fascinating portrait of like a time and a place through these three comedies, uh, just sort of in the wake of like Thatcherite England. I'm familiar with the van, but not the third. What was the third one that you mentioned? Brassed Off. Rast off. Uh, okay. Brast. Uh, it's oh, sorry, it's about brast. guys who form a brass band. Oh, cool. Uh, <laughs> nice. Yeah. Uh, so that's their that's that's their way back. 
but it's all but it's actually not much of a comedy because uh, most of it is against this backdrop of like imminent factory closure. Oh, sure. Um, and it's kind of a haunting. Like a lot of the a lot of these other movies sort of took place after like a factory's closed. Like that's sort of the start of the movie. Uh, Brassed off is like no, it's it's about the death of a town uh, in a lot of ways. Great stuff though. It's good. They were good movies. <sighs> yeah, I'm gonna have to check that out. Maybe I should check it out, and it could be a, a future weekend project. Yeah, good idea. 